The first reading is Isaiah 61, 1 to 4. 739 if you've got one of these Bibles. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, for the display of his splendour. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. The second reading is from uh, Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 17. It can be found on page 1019. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. One day as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house uh, to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralysed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. G'day, it's great to be with you this week and privileged to be reading the Bible and sharing with us from it. I'm not sure if you've realised that this Sunday marks four weeks until Christmas Day, 28 days to get everything ready, 28 days to buy all the gifts, buy all the food, um, remember all those cousins and aunties that you're meant to buy presents for. Uh, I find the present thing particularly tricky. I'm just not very good at remembering to buy presents. Um, And I'm also really bad at suggesting things for others to buy for me, which my family find really frustrating. I wonder if you're like that. How do you find Christmas presents? Have you got someone in your family who's really good at the whole buying presents thing? You know, that person who just knows what people will like, gives you things that you would never have thought to buy yourself. I wonder if, if you could ask God for something this Christmas. Ask God for anything what would you ask? I wonder if you thought, if God was to choose a present for you, not what you'd ask him for, but what God would choose to give you this Christmas, what would God choose? What would Jesus buy you for Christmas? 
And we see the God we meet in the Bible is not some distant Santa Claus that we just write a shopping list to. And he's not the distant uncle desperate to show that he's still relevant by buying us expensive presents. No, the God of the Bible is the one who made us, each one of us, personally, deliberately. He knows you and he loves you. He knows all your deepest fears, your greatest loves. He is imminently qualified to buy you just the present you need. What would Jesus buy for you? In the passage, the passage that we just had read from Luke 5, we see Jesus give a really surprising gift. Surprising because it's not what the man was expecting. It's not what he'd come asking for. But perhaps more surprising, I think, because it's exactly what that man most desperately needed. And I wonder tonight, could it be the same for us? Could it be that Jesus has what we most desperately need? Well, keep that passage open in Luke 5 so we can look at it together and you can see for yourself. Now, the story centres around this man who was paralysed. He came to Jesus with an obvious and an urgent need. If you see Luke chapter 5, verse 18, some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. Now, paralysis, to be paralysed, is, is horrible at any time. But in the first century, paralysis was a death sentence. There were no wheelchairs, no disabled access. There was no disability pension, no in-home care. If you were paralysed, you were totally dependent on the goodness and kindness of others to care for you, to provide for you. And this guy, it seems, had good friends because they carried him to Jesus. They arrive at the place where Jesus is teaching and it's packed. People have come from everywhere and they can't get in and so they climb up on the roof, they rip a hole in the roof and they lower their friend down so that he can get to Jesus. I wonder if you've ever felt this sort of desperate need, so aware of how desperate this is, willing to do anything. I don't know whose house this was. I don't know how much it cost to repair houses in the first century, but I assume this isn't very polite. Uh, This isn't what you'd normally do when you go to a friend's house. It's not just that these guys are uni students and reckless. They understand their friend's great need. If he isn't healed, if they don't get him to Jesus, his life will be short and painful. So no amount of damage, no amount of social embarrassment will stop them. They'll do everything they can to get their friend to this man, Jesus, because they're convinced that Jesus can heal him. Well, picture the scene, they lower him from the roof and there must have been mess and dust and I don't know what the roofs are made of, but you can imagine the crowd going silent, looking at the man, looking at Jesus, what will he do? Jesus looks at the men through the roof and he turns to the man on the, on the mat and he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Sins? Jesus, did you not notice his legs? Uh, no offence, but that's not what we came here for. Has Jesus missed that he's paralysed? Jesus didn't miss his paralysis. Nobody missed his paralysis. 
But Jesus says everyone's missed that this man has a greater need, a deeper need than his legs. See, his, his paralysis was urgent and devastating, but Jesus, in saying your sins are forgiven, shows there is something more important, something more urgent. And could it be that tonight we share that urgent need with this man? I don't know what you're going through, but many of us share, carry deep hurts, don't we? Real urgent needs, things that weigh heavily on us and rightly so. But could it be there is something even more urgent, something more desperate that all of us need? Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. He says this man is a sinner. Now in Australia, in our culture, we don't talk about sins very much. And if we do, it's probably talking about a decadent ice cream or a greasy hamburger. Uh, because we don't, we don't like the idea and so we trivialise it, right? But sinning is not about what you eat. It's not even just about the bad things that we do. That trivialises it as well. The Bible's picture is far more confronting. It's like the difference between a disease and its symptoms. The things that we do are the symptoms, but the disease runs much, much deeper. The heart of our problem is a relationship breakdown with the God who made us. Each one of us has suppressed the truth that God made us and rules over us, that he owns us, and we've acted as if we can run life ourselves without him. We're thankless when in fact we owe everything to him. We live for ourselves when we're made to live for him. We find our security and our delight in the things that we achieve or attain or gather for ourselves when really we're made to find our joy and life in worshipping and living in relationship with him. Sin is not that we've broken some rules. Sin is that we've made our own rules. We are part of a mutiny. As humanity, we've said no to God and that affects absolutely everything. All of our actions, all of our attitudes, our thinking, our desires, all of it is distorted because we've got life wrong. And the lie that we can live without God has horrible consequences. It's exposed when we fail to live properly ourselves, when we hurt each other and when we make a mess of the world that God has given us to care for. When our idols of money, family, career, sport, whatever it is that we live for, when they fail us, as they do. And ultimately, the lie is exposed by the reality of death. We think we can live without God, but for all our wisdom and strength, death makes a mockery of our claim to have life in ourselves. And the Bible's picture is that actually it gets even worse. It's even more desperate because there is a day coming when God will bring an end to this world and will call all of us to account that each one of us will have to answer before him for the way we've treated him. And on that day, God will bring perfect justice. He'll punish our horrific rebellion and destroy our rebel kingdom. 
and bring in a new world where there's no more brokenness, no more sin, no more rebellion, and all those who stand opposed to him will be cast out. And on that day, our greatest need will be laid bare, obvious for everyone to see. The one thing we will need on that day, the only thing that we'll need on that day, is for the God who holds our fate in his hands to forgive us, to not give us what we deserve, but to show us mercy. The one present we all desperately need is for the God who made us to offer us a pardon that we could never earn or deserve ourselves. I wonder if you've recognised your greatest need. Have you considered where you stand with God? When everything laid bare, when all the secrets are revealed, if we're honest, what we all need is what this man needed. And it doesn't just affect our relationship with God. So when we recognise that your need is the same as my need, that all of us are sinners before a holy God, we realise that we all... We are all alike. No matter what you've done, no matter what I've done, no matter our cultural, ethical, religious, socioeconomic differences, we all have the same need. We all stand before God guilty and in need of his mercy. But can Jesus really do anything about that? The second big thing our passage shows us, not only does Jesus expose our greatest need, Jesus claims that he can meet our greatest need. Come back to the passage. You see Jesus in verse 20 says, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And verse 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the sort of religious heavyweights, began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're not just surprised at Jesus' words, they're offended. How dare he offer forgiveness? There's only God's to give. And they're right, aren't they? If I was to walk into the Penrith courtroom tomorrow morning, interrupt a trial for a man uh, on trial for murder, and to stand up in the courtroom and say, look, mate, it's okay, I forgive you. Or if we were to sit in the in the, in the court and hear the defendant himself say, oh, I found a way to forgive myself. It's all okay. It's not okay, is it? Because he hasn't offended me. He hasn't ultimately offended himself. And you realise how offensive that would be to the family of the, the person that he's murdered. So if sin is not just breaking rules, but is our rebellion against God, then forgiveness really can only come from God. Does Jesus have the authority to forgive sin? And the Pharisees' question becomes our question, not just academically, but personally. Can Jesus really deal with everything I've done? Can Jesus really forgive me? Can he deal with all of it? If he knows everything I've done, every thought, the way I've pushed God aside, the way I've hurt other people, can Jesus really forgive all of that? 
Well, Jesus knows the Pharisees' question. Verse 22, he knew what they were thinking and he asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Well, which one do you think is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say in front of a crowd to a paralysed man, get up and walk? In one sense, to say your sins are forgiven is easier, isn't it? Because, well, no one knows if it's true or not. Until the day Jesus returns, only God can tell whether your sins are forgiven. Whereas publicly to say to someone who's paralysed, get up and walk, well, very soon, the words are easy to say, but very soon, everyone knows if your words carry any authority or not. Easy to say, but ultimately forgiving sins is much harder than healing, isn't it? So we're talking eternal consequences of our relationship with God. I think Jesus is showing that the two are linked. That physical sickness, paralysis, death, all of those things actually come from human rebellion, from our sin. Not necessarily this man's particular sins, but all the pain and suffering in the world comes because of God's judgment on our rebellion against him. And to deal with paralysis forever, you've actually got to deal with sin. To deal with the symptom of the disease, you need to deal with the heart of the disease. For Jesus to deal with all our hurts and pains, Jesus needs to deal with the judgment that we carry for rebelling against our creator. And Jesus wants to show that he can do just that. He says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralysed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. In front of them all, in front of the crowd, he says, let me show you I have this authority to forgive sins. Get up and walk. We've got a trainee physio amongst us. I don't know if we've got other health professionals, OTs. But imagine someone who's been paralysed for years perhaps his whole life. Just imagine what needs to happen for his legs to work again, just physically, the mechanics of it, for his muscles to bear his weight, for the neural pathways to work, for the message to go from his brain to his legs. At Jesus' command, this man stands up, picks up his mat and walks out in front of everyone. Not something done in secret. The crowd see it and they are amazed. They are filled with awe and so we've seen remarkable things so Jesus claims he has the authority to do what we most desperately need and he shows his authority through his miracles showing that he can overturn the effects of sin and as we keep reading through Luke's gospel we see that Jesus is able to overturn the effects of sin because he's going to the cross to deal with the heart of sin and his punishment once and for all. He can rescue us from death and judgment because he's going to take it for us. So Jesus' forgiveness is not just cheap words, not religious niceties, the sort of Christmas gift that looks good but turns out to be more show than it is go. And Jesus' gift isn't just words. His forgiveness comes at great cost. 
as he deliberately sets his face to Jerusalem and willingly goes to lay down his life for his enemies. Jesus offers full and free forgiveness because he's taken the full weight of the judgment that we deserve. He's died our death and been raised to life and he offers restored relationship with God now and resurrection from death when Jesus returns to take us to be with him forever in his new world where all the effects of sin have been overturned once and for all. I want you to imagine this paralysed man. We're told that he took his mat and he walked home. Imagine that walk home. I'm walking! My legs, they work, I can run, I can jump. Imagine him getting home and his family welcoming him home. What happened? Who did this? And he says, it was Jesus. My legs are fixed, but there's more. Jesus said to me, my sins are forgiven. All of them. My legs have been restored, and so is my relationship with God. I am forgiven forever. Can you imagine the celebration at that house that night? We'll go forward 20 years. 20 years of functioning legs, of being able to walk and work and care for his family. And now this man is on his deathbed and his family are gathered around him and he says to them, well, now I face death knowing what's on the other side. I know that God has forgiven me. I die going to be with Jesus, right with him. Now go forward another 20 years. Make it 20,000 years. The man is with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. Because of Jesus' forgiveness, this man has a new resurrected body. Not just legs that work, but a body that will never wear out. No aches and pains, no sickness, no cancer. Living in a world where there's no brokenness, no broken relationships, where there's no sin, a place where God is rightly honoured and where Jesus and the Father dwell with, their, with the people. Jesus is worshipped as he should be. And this man turns to Jesus and says, do you remember that day all those years ago in that crowded house when you, you fixed my legs and you forgave me? Which one seem, would seem more significant on that day? Which do you think he thanks Jesus for? Christmas is a terrific time of year, isn't it? As we remember that Jesus has come as a little baby to come to grow up to die that we might be forgiven. As we share presents expressing our love and care for each other, as we're given presents to show that we are valued and loved by others, Remember the gift that Jesus has offered to you to show how valuable you are to him, that he would give his life, that you might be forgiven. A gift that cost him dearly, 
a gift that meets your greatest need and my greatest need. How will you respond? Like this man, you could walk out of here tonight forgiven, right with God. I don't know where you're up to with God. I don't know if you're, this is old news that you hear again or if it's news you've heard for the first time. But today, you could ask Jesus to give you what you most desperately need. That's exactly what it means to become a Christian, to ask Jesus to forgive you, not because of how good you are or how good you're going to be, but because of what he's already done for you on the cross. I want to give you a chance to do that tonight. I'm going to pray a prayer in a minute. It's a very simple prayer. Let me read it. Uh, It just says, Dear God, I'm sorry that I've lived as if I didn't need you. Thank you that Jesus died to take the punishment I deserve. Please forgive me and help me to live not for myself anymore but for you. Now for many of you who have been walking in Jesus' forgiveness uh, for years, maybe tonight is a chance as I pray that prayer just to stop and to say thank you to Jesus for the gift that he's given you that you keep needing and keep depending on. Maybe you're not ready to pray this prayer tonight. You're still working out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Maybe tonight you need to, to pray a prayer to ask God to help you to understand if, if this is all true. Is this Jesus guy trustworthy? Maybe you need to pray for the courage to find out more, to ask someone here at church, maybe the person who brought you, to help you understand more. But if this prayer is for you, if this is what you need to pray tonight, then please don't put it off. Can I urge you not to leave tonight without having done business with God? To accept the gift that Jesus offers you. If that's you, then I'm going to pray this prayer out loud slowly and I uh, encourage you to pray it uh, phrase by phrase after me, just quietly in your own head to God and the rest of us, we can all bow our heads and pray. Let's do that. Dear God, I'm sorry that I've lived as if I didn't need you. Thank you that Jesus died to take the punishment I deserve. Please forgive me. And help me to live not for myself anymore, but for you. Amen.